liminality. I see some smiles out there, liminal spaces. If you've been around Federated and engaged in conversations with us about the future of the church this past year, you may be growing tired of hearing me use this word. To be honest, my goal is to keep talking about it until we as a whole are able to use, use it, talk about it in our own words. Because liminality, I know it's a sort of a jargony word, but it speaks to a part of our lives in a way that as far as I'm aware, no other word in our English language does. Without, without what this word captures, our lives are cut off from a certain depth and richness. Becoming familiar with it, with liminality and its invitation, will change how you live and the quality of life that you live. You see, liminality names those in-between spaces of life, the transitions, seasons that are ripe with possibility, but are also unsettling and imply loss. It's that messy middle where we are no longer who we were, but we don't yet really know who we are now. If we think about it, life is really one or, or many liminal seasons, transitions, one after the other, right? When we are no longer single, but we're trying to figure out what it means to be dating, in a relationship, married. When we are no longer just partnered or just an individual, but we're trying to figure out what it means to be a parent. Retirement, especially early on, is a liminal season, Right? You're no longer defined by your career or job title, but you're still searching for that, that new identity. What will define you in this new season? How will you spend your days? Divorce, losing your partner is a liminal season. What does it mean to be single again or widowed? Who am I now? Right? How does one even do this? Or your kid becoming a teenager or graduating and going off to college and no longer needing you in the same way. And you're trying to figure out who you are in relation to them, who they are apart from you, and, and they're doing the same kinds of things that you're having to do. Or coming out or transitioning, or having a family member who does so, and, and trying to figure out what it means to inhabit this new identity, this new and changing body, this new way in which others perceive you. Or when your health changes, and there's no going back to, to normal, the way you have after previous surgeries or diagnoses, where you're now being forced to live in a new reality with that diagnosis, but you don't yet really know what that means or looks like. When the church is changing and your role within it is changing and you're no longer sure how or where to serve, and on and on, liminal seasons are those seasons that require us to move into a new future to learn to live within a new reality where the only alternative 
is to stay stuck. But the tragic reality is that nowhere in the natural course of life's progression do we learn tools for navigating these seasons. They don't teach you this in school. Most of our families, we don't really learn this. And yet the truth is that life is one transition, one liminal season after another. And if we cannot find God or ourselves anew amidst the change, if we are not being made new through the change, if we stay stuck, then we will increasingly only live a shadow of a true life, a shell of who we were created to be. We will be increasingly frustrated and unceasingly caught in cycles of conflict that go nowhere. This is where the characters in this morning's scriptures find themselves. Again, last week we explored the nature of the conflict tearing apart the church in Corinth. Again, that it wasn't a single issue that they were divided on, but that there was a general divisiveness that had taken them over. Which, when we find ourselves in that place, trying to win against our partner or get our way, makes it impossible to navigate conflict or differences in ways that heal or repair. In Corinth, these factions tended to fall along the lines of socioeconomic status or power, right? So people used their money or their privilege or their connections or their status to get their way. And as we witness in our reading from 1 Corinthians this morning, picking up where we left off, Paul challenges this dysfunctional and toxic behavior. Right? Rather than rallying the troops to take his side against Apollos or anybody else, he refuses to participate in that kind of dynamic, telling them that such behavior mocks the very God and values that they are called to follow and live out. Values that are grounded in the foolishness of a crucified God. In doing so, Paul disrupts their status quo. He puts them in a liminal place. How will they choose to move forward? Will they stay stuck, caught in the same cycles, or will they open themselves to something different? In our passage from the book of Kings in the Old Testament, we find the prophet Elijah deeply troubled and uncertain of what to do next in his own journey. Again, in the chapters before this morning's reading, Elijah has stood up against the unjust rule and policies of the king, and now he is forced to pay the prophet's price. The king and the queen want him dead. And so Elijah has fled to the wilderness for his life. After traveling 40 days and 40 nights, fasting along the way, Elijah finds himself at a cave atop Mount Sinai where he cries out to God. Elijah is in a liminal moment. How should he move forward? What is being asked of him now? And how will it be similar to or different from before? given the change in his circumstances, the threat to his life. Now, oftentimes, when we are faced with such situations, we, we simply try to keep moving ahead. We just try to run away, perhaps start over. We might make a pros and cons list, might 
reflect a bit on the possibilities, but in the end, we see such seasons, such moments as something to simply get through, not be changed by. And this is what understanding liminality helps us to pay attention to. You see, in these moments, in these seasons, we are challenged to accept that what has come before can no longer be. Rather than simply getting through such seasons, assuming we can go back to some normal or or just move ahead, keep trucking along, we must learn here to discover new tools and patterns that can actually heal, repair, and transform us at a deeper level. It's in that very, very place, the wildernesses of life, where we must discover a new way of being and moving through the world. If we don't do this, we will get stuck. Our church will get stuck. Our relationships will get stuck and slowly rot from the inside out. See, as Richard Rohr reminds us, This is the place where we human beings hate to be, but where the biblical God is always leading us. Because they're always there. We're just usually trying to avoid them. This is the very place in which real spirituality and depth begins. It is the crucible in which a new and fuller humanity is forged and from which alone it can emerge. Apart from embracing liminality, all other spirituality remains on the surface. It's nothing more than self-help techniques. It lacks depth. Foundational to the new way of being discovered here is the spiritual practice of discernment. Again, this is precisely where the conflicted church in Corinth finds itself. Paul calls calls the Corinthians to re-root themselves in the soil of Christ, namely the cross of Christ, which means dying to their own egos, dying to hubris and pride and greed, to pushing their own agendas, to using their status and connections to get what they want, and calls them to be raised to new life in Christ, the crucified Christ, which means finding strength in weakness, finding power in opening ourselves to one another in vulnerability, in being accountable for our mistakes, even as we offer compassion and forgiveness question for the Corinthians is if they root themselves in this vision, in these values as their foundation, as a soil in which they root themselves, what will grow from it? How will this call them to structure leadership differently? What new directions will it lead them in their ministries to the wider world? How to live into these questions for the Corinthians and for us is the work of discernment. Again, this is where the prophet Elijah finds himself. As he cries out to God in fear and frustration and faith, 
he hears a voice echo from deep within. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah starts to answer when God seemingly cuts him off. No, no, no. I, I know what you're running from, Elijah. I know the voices and the fear that, that drove you here. I know how difficult and scary the path is before you. Here, go stand, go stand out on the mountain. So Elijah does. And just then a wind roars around him so strong that it splits the mountains and breaks the rocks into pieces. And God says, Elijah, I am not in the roaring wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but God was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but God was not in the fire. And after the fire... The sound of sheer silence. And when Elijah heard that, he wrapped his face in awe. And from the sound of sheer silence, he heard a voice echoing from the depths of creation. What are you doing here, Elijah? And in that moment, Elijah has to reconnect with the ground of his being. Beyond what he wants or doesn't want to do, Elijah must grapple with what he knows he must do. The path that he must continue down, even if he doesn't really want to. Even if he doesn't know exactly what that will mean doing, specifically tomorrow or the next week or the next year. Right? He, he could have made the same decision to go back, go back the way he came without this moment of deep discernment. But discernment enables him to embody it with greater clarity and conviction when he inevitably faces challenges down the road. Now discernment in, in common usage, as most of us use it, simply means to make a good decision, a good choice, using sound judgment, right? It's sort of synonymous with being discriminating, judicious, shrewd, clever. But this isn't what discernment means as a spiritual practice, as part of our ancient tradition. It's, it's not what the Corinthians or Elijah were called to do. It's not the deep space that we are invited to inhabit as we navigate conflict and differences. You see, if we believe that God is active in the world, that there is more to life than meets the eye, that we are invited to be in touch with and attuned to this, this moreness, this animating life force that we name God, then more than making pros and cons lists, more than making decisions based on what we like or want or what sets us up for success, more than all that, we must cultivate practices for attending to and listening for God. Practices that attune and align us with this animating force that weaves life together. Again, discernment is the cornerstone of such practices. And chief 
to the practice of discernment is the art of cultivating stillness in our lives. The ability to still our minds and the willingness to let go of all the voices that get loud the moment that we do. I know many of us struggle with this. I do, too, at times. But like Elijah and the Corinthians, we cannot discern a new path forward if all we can hear are the loudest voices in the room or the voices of shame and guilt or the voices of, what will others think about me if I do this? Or the voices of others that just simply tells you to do what they have told you to do. You see, the voice of God is not heard in the chaos, the the thunder, the roar, the earthquake of all of these voices. Discernment is an invitation to listen for the voice that speaks from the depths and within the silences. Discernment also challenges, as we reflected on last week, us to gain clarity on those values and convictions that we talked about, right? Our actions and decisions must be grounded in them because if we do something merely because it's popular or exciting or because it's what a wealthy donor wants us to do or a powerful personality insists that we do, but it doesn't reflect or flow from our core values, then it is bound not to last it will eventually lead to ruin. To that end, the third core practice of discernment requires shedding. Again, rather than getting my way, insisting on my way as the Corinthians are doing, shedding invites us to let go of personal preferences, our fears, our attachment to particular outcomes, That is to act, ultimately, not based in our egos, but in alignment with the deeper, wiser voice that calls to us from the depths, which may in fact contradict what our egos think that we want or need. Rather than pretending like we don't have any preferences or or that we like all of the options equally, usually we don't, Rather than pretending that we we don't have those preferences, discernment invites us to name those things, to put them out on the table, to bring them out of the shadows and into the light. What am I afraid of? Which outcome am I most attached to? We do this in order to remain accountable to those core values and to one another as we discern how to move forward. Our world is filled with ego-driven hubris in communities that are shaped by it, churches that are shaped by it. Like the church in Corinth, it is tearing our nations, our churches, and our families apart. So what a profound witness it would be if we dared to chart another path. 
if we were a place that intentionally embraced the transforming possibilities that liminality calls forth from us. How are we being called to be different in these seasons? May it be so for our healing and transformation, for the healing and transformation of all the world. Amen.